Part Seven of Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore, from the Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines, by Mary Cowden Clarke. Part Seven. On arriving at Cornelius's mansion, they found from her attendants that the lady Thyra had not yet left her room. She lies late ordinarily, dear mother. Let us seek her in her chamber. Her friend Ophelia is privileged to come to her rooms at all seasons, even when she is, as now, a slug abed. She went at once to the sleeping apartment. She saw at a glance that Thyra was not lying there, but as she was retiring, a something within the curtains at the bed's foot caught her eye. It was the figure of her friend, half hidden among them. Ophelia went gently forwards, to embrace her. But as she extended her arms to wrap about Thyra's form, it swung heavily away from her, a mere heap of inanimate matter, an image, a corse. It was the dead body of Thyra, hanging where her own desperate hand had stifled out life. Near to her was afterwards found a paper with these words. "'My father, forgive your lost child. Oh, lost, lost indeed, every way lost!' You destined my hand to one whom I could not love. I pledged faith, affection, honour, all to one whom I loved only too well. He whom I so fatally trusted has proved false. He fled. What is left me but to die? Deal indulgently by my memory for the sake of what I was to you, when, an innocent child at your knee, your blessing rested on my head. Let the thought of me as I was then be all that shall live in your remembrance of. Thyra. When Ophelia was lifted from the floor, where she had fallen prostrate, she was in strong convulsions. The shock she had received produced a severe illness. For a long space she lay in the utmost danger, now wandering in delirium, now sunk into a heavy stupor. From one of these deep sleeps she once awoke, stretching forth her hand feebly, and uttering a faint word or two. Her mother, who had never quitted her side, perceived the movement and bent over her, to catch the sense of the murmured sound. Is the king dead? I trust not, dear one. He is absent in Norway, and the last dispatches brought intelligence of his safety. Methought I saw him dead, said Ophelia. I have been dreaming strangely. Her mother spoke soothingly, striving to compose and divert her attention from dwelling upon this. She smoothed and arranged the pillow beneath the feverish head, and put some cool beverage to the parched lips, whispering the while loving, cheerful words. But Ophelia reverted to the theme, and her mother, finding her inclined to speak, and that she did so with none of the agitation which marked her words when she wandered, let her muse on thus half aloud. He seemed dead as I saw him, though he moved before me, waving his arm toward them. He pointed to them as each appeared. Of whom do you speak, dear child? Of those figures, those women. It was down by the brook, among the reeds, beneath the willow. Not the stream in the wood, but the brook yonder which flows into the castle moat. That solitary spot, all rush-grown and shadowy, where the water creeps on sluggish and slow, margined by rank grass and river-weeds. You remember?" Her mother gave token of assent. It was there she sat, the first figure that I saw. The night was obscure, the clouds scudded athwart the sky, the moon's light struggled feebly through them. There was a veil of haze upon tree and shrub and brook, but I saw her plainly, and knew her at once, though her long hair fell drooping over her knees as she sat. 
I knew her before she shook it back and wrung her hands and moaned over the little white face that lay upon her bosom. It was Jutha, mother." The Lady Uder would fain have prevented Ophelia from proceeding, but she feared to do harm by checking her in her evident desire to speak on. I would have gone towards her, but my feet were rooted to the spot, while close behind me there gradually shaped itself into substance a form that seemed to grow out of the shadowy night air. It became the distinct semblance of the King, as I saw him ride to the Norwegian wars in coat of armour, and with truncheon in hand not long since save that his face, in lieu of being lighted with hope of conquest, lifelike and animated, was pale and all amort, ghastly and set in death. He turned this wan visage full upon me as he pointed to the figure of her who sat lamenting, and then she vanished. Dear Ophelia, thou shalt not recall these sad images. Let me tell thee, dear one, of thy father, who—but there were two others I saw. One was my poor Thyra. I knew her by a terrible token and Ophelia's voice became nearly extinct as she added, "'Her livid throat, mother, and there was a space between her feet and the ground as she glided past me.' A moment's pause, and then Ophelia went on. But she faded out of my ken also, as the mailed figure again stretched forth his pointing hand. The wind sighed amid the reeds. The heads of nettles and long purples were stirred by the night breeze as it swept on mournfully. The air seemed laden with heavy sobbings. Then I saw one approach whose face I could not see, and whose figure I knew not. She was clothed in white, all hung about with weeds and wild-flowers, and from among them stuck ends of straw that the shadowy hand seemed to pluck and spurn at. The armed royalty waved sternly, but as if involuntarily commanded by yet a higher power than his own will. And then the white figure moved on, impelled towards the water. I saw her glide on, floating upon its surface. I saw her dimly among the silver-leaved branches of the drooping willow, as they waved around and above her, up-buoyed by her spreading white garments. The mother shuddered as her eye fell upon the white night-gear of her child telling the vision. But at this moment Polonius softly entered the room, having heard from Gouda that his daughter had awakened better, and that she was talking more collectedly than she had done since her illness. He was soon busily engaged in his half-fussy, half-kindly manner, chiding Uder for indulging Ophelia with too much license of speech, and making many remarks equally sapient and facetious on women's love of talk, their proneness for confabulation and gossip. "'They will let each other talk, rather than not have talk toward,' said he. "'But you, lady-wife, and you, my girl, must be patient yet a while, and let rest and perfect silence do their work. Quiet is restorative give it its full trial, beseech you." Thanks to Udra's tender nursing, Ophelia was restored to health, but a more severe blow than any she had yet sustained now awaited her. Death, which had spared herself, took her mother from her. It is true that the anguish of sudden separation was not theirs. For some time Udra lingered, hers was a gradual decay, without pain, and without loss of faculty. She was able to give her child those counsels which should best protect her in her approaching entrance upon the world's experience, while the daughter was permitted the comfort of yielding the gentle ministerings, the loving tendance which best alleviate sickness and suffering. The anxious mother would often recur to the nature of the perils which most peculiarly threaten a young maiden introduced for the first time to the society of men of the world men, her superiors in rank, as in artful experience, and from the exercise of which art to her prejudice no conscientious scruples would deter them. 
The mother thought it behoved her in an especial manner to guard Ophelia by this pre-knowledge of the dangers that would environ her, when left alone, as she felt her child must soon be, with no female guidance, no other protection than her own heart. And how was this heart to counsel her, were it not previously fortified and instructed by an understanding of its probable hazards, and of its best sources of defence against them? Udra deplored the necessity that existed for thus forestalling in her daughter's mind an acquaintance with the existence of vice, but she felt it to be a necessity, and she did not shrink from the performance of her duty. She consoled herself also with the reflection that to learn the nature of vice is not to become acquainted with vice itself, or the practice of vice, that to know of evil is not to know evil, that to perceive the perils of sin is no allurement to sin. On the contrary, she felt that a virtuous nature as instinctively shrinks from the pollution of crime, as purity recoils from mingling with impurity. There subsists mutual repugnance to combine. She therefore hesitated not to point out evil to her young daughter, as the surest means of averting it. "'But not only, my child,' Udra once said, "'have I to caution you against the viciously disposed young men. Even with their best simulation there is something that betrays itself of such men's real propensities, to act as a warning and a repellent to one of pure inclinations. There is Claudius, the king's brother, for instance, a licentious, unscrupulous man, who, unless my instincts have played me false, and done him grievous injustice, would be restricted by no consideration of honour or duty in the pursuit of his desires. From such coarse homage as his, were it offered to her, my child's own delicacy and native good-feeling would at once prompt her to shrink. It is the good, the gentle, the refined in manner, the accomplished in speech and deportment, the cultivated in imagination and intellect, against whom my daughter must also learn to guard her heart, lest such qualities betray her into a premature gift of that heart, fatal to her peace of mind. Tell me, my child, it is to your own mother you are speaking, remember. Tell me if you know one thus distinguished." Ophelia was standing behind the large chair in which Udra reclined, so that her face was unseen. But as she leaned over and kissed the wan cheek, her mother felt the glow she could not behold. "'Since I have heard that His Highness the Lord Hamlet has returned from Wittenberg,' said Udra, "'I have always believed that you, dear child, could not fail to note in him the maturity of those excellences, of which I remember he gave such fruitful token in earliest youth. Even then I could foresee what the future man would be, from the nobleness of nature, which shone conspicuous in every word and deed of the young prince. He was in truth a royal child, a noble boy. And as he grew into manhood I still marked, on each of his successive returns to Elsinore, how worthily he fulfilled the promise of his boyhood. Such a mind and heart as his, seen as they are through those dark expressive eyes, now full of intellectual fire, now softened by sensibility, seen as they are through his most beautiful smile, a smile peculiarly his, so gentle, yet so arch, so pregnant of meaning, so persuasive in its sweet fascination, can scarcely fail of winning for him the favour of any woman whom he should seek to interest. But must the yielding him her favourable thoughts be so fatal a surrender for the woman whom he could truly love? whispered Ophelia. For her whom he could love, truly, and in truth love, no. Assuredly no," said Udra. Were a woman well convinced that she had indeed become possessed of his true affection, she would but exchange a mutual treasure in the full bestowal of her heart's best feeling upon such a man as Hamlet. But let her be sure, 
entirely sure of his love for her, let her beware that his thought is as deeply fixed upon her as hers could be upon him, ere she allow her own to occupy itself too curiously with his merits. Let her securely know that his heart is firm set in constancy and truth towards her, ere she weakly suffer her imagination to become enamoured of excellences only too well calculated to inspire a passion, which, if hopeless, would be fatal to her peace of mind. Thus it came, that, from her mother's warning at this time, as from her father's and her brother's admonitions at a subsequent period, Ophelia had the perils which awaited her in her future life at court, peculiarly impressed upon her mind. After the Lady Udra's death, both the King and the Queen made it their study by their tenderness and almost parental kindness of attention to the motherless girl, to lighten the affliction of her loss. They were, in their behaviour to her, rather like affectionate and gracious friends than her sovereigns. They showed, by their eagerness to have her as much as possible with them, that they would fain act the part of loving relations by her, and she soon learned to regard them with as fond an attachment. The Prince Hamlet joined his royal parents in their attempt to soften the grief of Ophelia, and in this gentle task his own growing preference for her gained strength and fixedness of purpose. His kindness and sympathy were enlisted in her behalf, his refined taste was attracted by her maiden beauty, his delicacy of feeling taught him to delight in her innocence, her modesty, her retiring diffidence, his masculine intellect found repose in the contemplation of her artless mind, her untaught simplicity, her ingenuous character. His manly soul dwelt with a kind of serene rapture on the sweet feminine softness of her nature. As time went on, tokens of his increasing regard awoke a responsive feeling in her breast towards him. But while this fair flower of love was springing up between them, near to it lurked an unsuspected rankness of growth, the foul, unwholesome weed of a forbidden passion. It happened that a courser of matchless breed was sent from a distant court, as a present to that of Denmark. The king bestowed the gift on his son Hamlet, and one morning Queen Gertrude and Ophelia were leaning from the balcony of a window overlooking the courtyard of the castle, that they might watch the prince as he went through the varied paces, and tried the several merits of the high-mettled horse. The interest of the sight absorbed them wholly. Their eyes were riveted upon the animated scene below, and they were unconscious that any one was in the room near them, when Claudius stepped close to where the Queen was bending forward, and standing just within the open window that led on to the balcony, a few paces behind her, he murmured, "'This has slipped from your Majesty's arm.' She turned and saw that he had just picked up from the floor her bracelet, which he held towards her, but not within reach. "'Will your Grace receive it at my hand?' he said without tendering it any nearer, but holding it, as it were, in a manner of a lure, that she might step within the room from the balcony. She did so, saying, "'I thank you, my lord, for the pains you have taken, that I should not lose what I prize so highly.' "'You may requite them,' he said. "'Yonder silken trifle, that heaving ribbon, blushing and fragrant, a carnation set midst lilies,' he continued, pointing to a crimson knot she wore upon her bosom shall be rich ransom for the jewel. Were it not for the young girl so near to us, for whose innocent sake I indulge you with this lowered voice, my lord, you should not dare speak thus," said Gertrude, glancing towards the balcony where she had left Ophelia. I rejoice in her presence, or in aught else, that procures me this concession, this chance. Could you know the fever of solicitude which I have watched for such a precious moment? 
Could you know the anguish of seeing you ever near, yet ever removed from my— My lord, I entreat, I insist, no more, interrupted the queen. Give me the bracelet. Not without its ransom. The last token was torn from you. This, I am resolved, shall be yielded of your own grace, accorded to me by your pity. That womanly heart, could it only know how sorely I need comfort, would not refuse me its compassion." He saw that she could not hear unmoved an allusion to his unhappiness, offspring though it was of a criminal passion. In such a woman as Gertrude, the sight of the influence her beauty had upon his senses excited involuntary interest. There was that in her voluptuous nature which responded instinctively to the luxurious ardour of the passion he had dared to conceive and avow. Instead of in her heart resenting, and by her manner repelling the boldness of his warmth, instead of resisting its effect upon herself, and repressing its expression in him, she could not help yielding to the secret guilty pleasure of knowing it to exist. She allowed herself to contrast its unhallowed fire with the pure love of her wedded lord, and sensually judged the one seemed superior in fervour to the other. The wife who admits such thoughts, so judging, is already adulterate in spirit. Yet still her feeble soul struggled to preserve a show of virtuous indignation at the insult of his admiration. "'Know you to whom you speak, my lord? Do you remember that I am a wife?' she said in reply to his last speech. "'Too fatally, and that you are not mine.' He struck his forehead with his clenched hand. "'Cease, sir. Think that I am your brother's, your queen. You strain our patience.' And do you owe me no indemnity for that which I have shown in my long silent torture? Let me have the token I covet, or I keep the gem. You abuse your advantage, my lord. Misery breeds selfishness, he replied. I have bided too long in bitter, hopeless misery to neglect the one poor gain within my power. Grant me the silken toy. I dare not let my husband miss his gift from my arm, said the queen, hastily detaching the ribbon. Neighboured as this has been a thousand times more precious, he exclaimed, as he snatched the breast-knot to his lips, and returned her the jewel. Within a week of that time the realm of Denmark was thrown into dismay by the sudden death of its monarch. The good king, so it was reported, while sleeping, as was his afternoon wont, in the orchard which formed part of the palace grounds, had been stung by a serpent, and from the venom inflicted by the wound he had instantly sickened and died. Ere the nation could recover from its consternation, and while the rightful heir to the crown was plunged in filial grief, Claudius seized the crown, and caused himself to be proclaimed king. So artfully had all his plans been laid, so resolutely and so promptly did he carry them all out, that he established his claims to the succession, or rather fixed himself firmly in the possession of his usurped dominion, before the public voice on behalf of its lawful prince could be upraised to dispute his pretensions. Scarcely had this first bold step been securely taken, when it was followed up by the solemnity of coronation, and shortly after by the ceremonial of marriage between the reigning monarch and his late brother's widow. The habitual acquiescence with which royal proceedings are for the most part regarded by the populace, could hardly restrain the expressions of amazement and dissatisfaction which these events excited but they occurred in such rapid succession, were carried with so high a hand, and were executed so peremptorily, that they passed without open murmurs, without attempted opposition. 
Moreover, the lavish splendour with which the two rites of royal marriage and coronation were solemnized, had their effect upon the vulgar mind in causing them to be regarded with curiosity and interest, rather than with reprobation. Claudius knew the full advantage of investing his royal proceedings with the glare of pomp and ostentation, as a means of dazzling the public eye, and he omitted no circumstance that could blind its judgment. He caused the rumour of the surpassing magnificence which was to mark the approaching ceremonies at the Danish court, to be spread far and wide, and among the many attracted from a distance to witness so gorgeous a scene, young Laertes, Ophelia's brother, came from France, that he might be present. He was pleased with this opportunity for spending some time with a sister whom he so tenderly loved, for though during their life they had been much separated, yet in those intervals that they had been together, he had learned to appreciate and love the modest worth, the affectionate nature of this gentle being. Besides, they had been in the habit of corresponding with one another by letter, and thus the attachment between them had been maintained and cemented. To this means of intercourse he reverted when, the regal pageant concluded, Laertes prepared to return to France. As he bade her farewell, he prayed her to let no long time elapse ere he should hear from her. And she, in her own quiet though earnest way, in her own simple sincerity of manner, replied, Do you doubt that? What to this was sequent thou knowest already. End of part seven. End of Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore, by Mary Cowden Clark.